The Secrets of Star Trek is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to The Secrets of Star Trek, episode 147. Captain DeBridge. Spock here. Make itself. Surrender is not an option. Attention crew of the Enterprise, this is James Kirk. We are all explorers, driven to know what's over the horizon, what's beyond our own shores. We would have helped you get home if you had asked. That's who Starfleet is. Hi, I'm Dom Bettinelli, and you're listening to The Secrets of Star Trek, where we discuss the hidden layers and deeper meanings found in all the Star Trek TV series, movies, and more. And today we're discussing something a little different. We're talking about what some have called the second greatest Star Trek movie ever made. Uh, I was going to call it the greatest Star Trek movie ever made. (laughs) And some have called it the greatest Star Trek movie ever made. We're talking about Galaxy Quest, that 1999 movie starring Tim Allen and a whole great cast. And it has become a classic of the genre, an homage. Joining me today on the panel are Father Corey Stika. Hi, Father Corey. How's it going? I, I can't believe it was 1999. For some reason, I thought it was earlier, but... <laughs> yeah, yep. Uh, I, I, for some reason, I thought it was later because I'm getting old. And Jimmy Aiken. <laughs> Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. So, folks, remember to like The Secrets of Star Trek on Facebook, where we're at facebook.com slash Media. Retweet us on Twitter, where we're at SQPN, and uh, leave us some comments. Let us know what you think of the show, of this discussion, or anything else. Uh, Also, stick around to the end. We've got some feedback from a listener on a recent episode. But uh, first, let's talk about Galaxy Quest. So here's the brief recap. If if it's been a long time since you've watched Galaxy Quest, if, God forbid, you haven't seen Galaxy Quest, (laughs) (laughs) go and see it. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say, if you haven't, pause this episode, go watch it, and then come back. (laughs) So here's the the brief synopsis. The cast of an old 1980s, space adventure television series galaxy quest now spend most of their days attending fan conventions and making promotional appearances though the series uh full of himself former star jason nesmith thrives on the attention the other cast members resent him and to varying degrees the states of their careers but then they encounter some interesting fans who take them on a new adventure based on a misunderstanding and uh, give them a new meaning uh, in in their lives, I suppose you could put it. Yeah, that's more the premise than the than a synopsis of what happens. But yeah, yeah. So this is a this is a Romana Clef for Star Trek. A Romana Clef being a type of story where you have you're really talking about identifiable people, but with the names changed. Right. And so Jason Nesmith is our stand-in for William Shatner. Mm-hmm. And not everybody on the Galaxy Quest crew corresponds exactly to someone on Star Trek, but they're clearly analogs. Yeah. Right. Other than Jason Nesmith being Captain Kirk, Commander Taggart, as they call him here, the uh, the other most clear reference is, uh, or stand-in, is Alan Rickman playing Dr. Lazarus, who has a weird head and is basically kind of playing a, a combination of Spock and Worf. I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree. Yep. You also have uh, Sigourney Weaver as the as, as a sort of stand-in for Uhura, 
except her job's a little different. Instead of running communications, I mean, she does run communications, but her job is to repeat whatever the computer says (laughs) and and to talk to the computer. (laughs) The computer seems to respond to her verbal requests better than anybody else's verbal requests. Yes. And you then have a guy named Laredo, or that's his character's name, who plays sort of a combination of Geordi LaForge, Sulu, and Wesley Crusher. Yeah. I agree. I agree. And then you have uh, Tony Shalhoub playing oh, yeah. Fred Kwan. Tech Sergeant is, Chen. Uh, Tech Sergeant Chen, who's kind of a really laid-back Scotty. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Tony yeah. Shalhoub's part in this is awesome. And, yeah. <laughs> and one of the things I noticed, so we've got, those are our five main cast members from the yeah. original Galaxy Quest, which aired in around like 1980 to 1982. And that's the right number. One of the problems mm-hmm. they have with Star Trek is having too many principles that they're, that they're trying to focus on. And this became a real problem in the movies, because if you're an actor, why do I want to show up to say Hailing Frequencies Open Captain? You know, I, right. want, I want something meatier to do than that. And they really struggled in the original series movies to find things for the characters to do that weren't Kirk or Spock or to some right. degree McCoy. Right. And they, it, by the last one, they couldn't even get everybody back because they just mm-hmm. did not have enough for them to do. But that doesn't, is not a problem in Galaxy Quest. In Galaxy Quest, every one of the main characters does stuff that clearly moves the plot forward. They all have their individual moments of crisis where they are right. dealing with something. And it, it's like, this is the right number of people. We even have an additional guy who's crewman mm-hmm. number six, who is <laughs> literally, the, yeah, <laughs> yeah, literally, <laughs> literally crewman number six. He's the actor's name is supposed to be Guy Fliegman, uh, but mm-hmm. his care, and so they just call him Guy. But he doesn't even have a character name, and right. he perceives himself as the red shirt, as the guy who dies to prove yeah. the situation is serious. And so once he realizes well, what's going on. He's terrified for his life. <laughs> yeah. Well, and the, the funny yeah. part is, like, he's literally the crewman who dies before the first commercial break. Yes. Well, that's, he's the guy he, who's, he, like, he was an extra. instantly yeah. dies. Yeah. <laughs> well, and his name is Guy. I mean, that's the best part of it is that they, they yeah. literally named the character Guy, which is, which is played by Sam Rockwell. Uh, a couple other uh, uh, characters is the head of the Thermians, the aliens who are mm-hmm. here on a misunderstanding to recruit the crew of the Galaxy Quest. His name, uh, that's paid, uh, his name is Maltazar, played by Enrico Colantoni, who is awesome. I love him in so many things. Uh, right. Such a great cast. So, uh, so the premise, and, and that aspect of the premise, is the, there's this alien race called the Thermians. They, they look, in their natural form, kind of like octopus monsters, but they use yes. these appearance generators to look human, and, they're, and they look like you know, cosplaying sci-fi fans from Planet of the Vampires, the <laughs> old Italian <laughs> yeah. movie that inspired Alien. And they have been watching Galaxy Quest on television from space, you know, because the radio waves propagate. And in their culture, they have never, never invented fiction. So they don't mm-hmm. understand what they're watching. They think everything they see on TV is a historical document. And they've <laughs> rebuilt, they had, apparently they had real problems in their culture, but then Galaxy Quest like inspired their culture and caused a reformation on Thermia and saved them. And 
and now they've built a replica of the Protector, the Galaxy Quest ship that's fully functional based on what they saw on the TV show. They're, they've been in a conflict with something called the Ceres Empire, led by a kind of reptilian insect lobster-headed guy named Ceres, and they're trying to negotiate a peace treaty with him, but they're terrible at diplomacy. So they decide to come to Earth to get Tim Allen's character to do the negotiation for them. He thinks he's just helping some fans do a video production in their basement. And yeah. so rather than take it seriously and negotiate, he just orders them to fire all their weapons at Sarah's. Because he's hungover. And he's hungover. <laughs> yeah. and, 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 and they do that. He, by the way, he also lives in the famous Stahl House in the Hollywood Hills. If you recognize uh -huh. the house mm. that Tim Allen lives in, it's been in a bunch of stuff, including the pilot of Columbo and a bunch of other things. So it's, it, it, if it looks familiar, that's why. But then it turns out Ceres is not dead and, so, and wants to negotiate a surrender. So the Thermians come back, and this, this time they take not just Tim Allen, who by this point has realized this is all real, but also the rest of the Galaxy Quest crew, who think this is an acting gig for some fans and have mm -hmm. a very rude awakening. And there's this moment where it, one of the ways they transport you up is using something they call a pod. And and a light appears beneath your feet, and then this goop comes up over your legs and covers your entire body, and you're rocketed through space at tremendous velocity yeah. before being suddenly deposited where you're at your destination, where the goop vanishes and you're kind of smoking a little bit. And so you have <laughs> you have all of the Galaxy Quest crew except Tim, who's uh, Tim Allen, who's gotten there early. All of them experience this together. They're just stunned standing on the pod pad at the end of it. And these octopus monsters come in waving horrible-looking mechanical torture devices at them. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and, and screeching. And then they like suddenly turn into the Thermians. It's like, oh, we forgot our appearance generators. We're terribly sorry. And, <laughs> yes. and and Tim Allen comes in and it's like, hey, guys, you want the full tour of the ship? And it's all been so much that at that moment, Guy just screams. And it's, <laughs> yes. it's terrific. And but, then, and, but Tech and Sergeant Quan is like, cool. Yeah. yeah, tech, <laughs> yeah. Then Tony Shalhoub beams up and he's <laughs> like, that was a heck of a thing. <laughs> yeah. I just love his character. He has so well, many eccentricities in this. I mean, he's ultra relaxed. He acts like he's stoned a lot of the time. Well, he, he apparently has the munchies because he's always eating. He's always looking for food. He's got a giant paper grocery bag of goodies that he carries around with him. Yes. Yeah. And at one point, Guy even asks him, Are you stoned? Because his attitude is so weird. But it, it, even beyond that, like when he fits into the role of being the chief engineer on the Protector, he's got this team of Thermians that are the ones who really know the science. And mm -hmm. they're solving problems. And he's like, okay, everybody, group hug. Yes. <laughs> got, got this one right. You well, know, I like the, the, the ships blow, you know, ships blowing up or their, their power source is blowing up. Hey, guys, they tell me there's a problem. Yeah. <laughs> Ships coming apart and stuff like that. Yeah. <laughs> so apparently Tony Shalhoub did not have a lot of lines. So the, the, his direction was just kind of like do stuff. And so a lot of what he does for this movie 
is nonverbal stuff that he just does in the site in the scene well, but, in the background or whatever. But that's his comedy, though. I mean, he very much yeah. is everything you see him in. It there's so much more physical action than there yeah. is words. Right, right. So I, I want to talk about this. I, some of the rest of the cast, people that you know who were who were mm-hmm. unknown at the time. Rain Wilson is has yeah. like the briefest line in this he was supposed to have a bigger role than got a part and had to leave but rain wilson who ends up in the office as a big character as uh and um, discovery star trek discovery and star trek discovery right Uh, that's right he goes back uh and then we have brandon uh, i'm sorry justin long as the nerdy fan brandon who he and his pals are the true heroes of this film because they're the ones who save the day Yeah, yeah in a sense and that's kind of goes to the to the heart of the movie. In 1999 when this came out, this was before the whole geek renaissance, shall we say. Mm-hmm. When geek went mainstream, San Diego Comic-Con big came, became the biggest entertainment event of the year, all that sort of stuff. Convention, yeah, fan I, I remember and, it. I could go to San Diego Comic-Con in the 90s <laughs> and it was huge then, but it was at least tolerable. Yeah. <laughs> right, exactly. Now it's all, you know, uh, uh, you know, lots too many people. And so, um, but this was when geekdom was didn't have the respect it, ha- it has now. In some ways, um, it, it didn't have the impact. And so, it, it's this is movie. It feels like an homage to to the fans who keep things like Star Trek alive through their mm-hmm. love of it and their their desire to talk about it and to know everything about it. And I think that's that's the reason why it has become so popular. Is you know, first of all, you know, I. I, I we, there is a documentary, Never Surrender, which yes. just came out last year which, or two years ago, which is very much worth watching. And you know, one thing he talks about is it really was not a big success. It made money at the box office, but it wasn't like this huge mega success in the box office by any stretch of the imagination. And part of that was, of course, the suits not promoting it well. But it became much more popular because at first it was looked upon almost as an insult towards Star Trek fans at first. Which it is, but is not. It's clearly it is not at all. coming from not a place of love. It's like Lower Decks. Yeah. And that's, right. what, that's what people realize very quickly. It's like, no, the people who wrote this, who, who did this, they like Star Trek. They like the, the Star Trek universe. They like the Star Trek mythos. And it also touches something I think a lot of geeks, and I know speaking for myself, we want it to be real. We know that right. when you watch the original series, it's any or actually any Star Trek, it's all plywood sets and paint and lights and right. actors and fake. We want it to be real. We want there to be a USS Enterprise out there somewhere that we can beam up to and go to strange new worlds. And we want there right. to be a TARDIS that we could jump into and go through time and space with the Doctor. We want that to be real. Yes. And this kind of really true. touches on that. That's one of the I think one of the reasons why it's so successful is it plays with that that real emotional connection that we make with the things we love in culture. Speaking of uh, uh, homage, one of the things that apparently was uh, uh, they were worried about was that Paramount, which owns Star Trek or owned it at the time, it's gotten complicated, but they were worried about Paramount suing them over the design of the ship and that sort of thing. So the number of the ship instead of NCC seventeen oh one like Enterprise, it's NT. E three one two zero NTE stands for, according to the documentary that we watched, stands for not the Enterprise. <laughs> so, <Yeah. laughs> so if a lawyer ever comes up and says, "Look, it says right on it, not the Enterprise," 
So yeah, <laughs> and there's there's good. a lot of it. You, they they talk about where they had to change things because it was too close to Star Trek, and and of course at the right. time Paramount had all the movie rights to Star Trek, so this was you know a movie, and that caused a lot of issues there. So yeah, right, right. I remember when this came out after watching it. Now it came out in 1999, which was late in the Voyager run. So yes. Deep Space Nine was off the air. Voyager was the only thing on the air. Enterprise wasn't around yet. And the franchise felt really tired. Right. And it was just not in its best place. And I remember thinking, Galaxy Quest deserves its own franchise more than Star Trek does at this point. That Star Mm -hmm. Trek is just tired. And this film was so much fun. It's, it, 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 is just an emotional roller coaster with wonder and joy and comedy and fear and terror and yeah. all it's just it you just cycle through all these emotions it is it, it at least for a star trek fan this is a basically perfect movie i mean mm-hmm. yes. you could you could tweak it here or there a little bit but basically this is a perfect movie and right. and I I uh, apparently there have been attempts to get it a mm-hmm. series or a sequel. I even had a sequel idea for it at one point that involved time travel and the Omega thirteen with Saris resetting himself, unbeknownst to the crew. Aha! Uh-huh. Uh-huh. But apparently there's still hopes of getting that to happen. Although Alan Rickman's death uh, has complicated things, but right. uh, yeah. we may yet get a get a sequel and apparently they're concerned with you know how do you capture lightning in a bottle twice mm-hmm. because right. we don't want to just make a sequel just to make a sequel we want it to be good and well, so yeah. i hope they are able to do that yeah well you know one one thing when they first promoted this harold ramus was to be the original director of this you know and of course mm-hmm. you know famous for ghostbusters famous for his comedy and everything but he wanted it more not really slapstick, but he wanted it much more, you know, more like space gig a minute, frankly. you know, yeah, yeah. like a yeah. spaceballs, like a spoof. And that is not and what this should be. No, no. And that, I think that's what's so great about it is it does start out as the comedy and it starts out as, you know, Tim Allen being Tim Allen and everything. And, but eventually it actually moves into real drama, real seriousness. Yeah. Uh, there's a, a point where I guess Alan Rickman, uh, Tim Allen was doing the scene with Malthazar. And where of course to- it's, you know, where he was reveal. being tortured, Master was being tortured, yeah. and he had to reveal, I'm an actor, I'm fake. And I guess, you know, they did the take over and over and over and over, and Tim Allen eventually says, I can't do this anymore. I don't like how I feel. Because he was getting emotional. Mm-hmm. He was actually starting to cry. And Alan Rickman turns to, I think it was Sigourney Weaver that said this, uh, now he's finally experiencing, I think he just experienced acting. Yes. <laughs> I love Alan Rickman. He is the best. <laughs> such a great yeah. dry sense of humor. I mean, great yes, British yes. sense of humor. And he was a serious actor. I mean, like you, yeah. he. I mean, he had done, um, you know, Die Hard and stuff like that. But he had also done, you know, Jane Austen movies. I mean, he was oh, a yeah, serious just actor. We watched him in one in a miniseries. Yeah. Right. Right. And uh, you know, Sigourney Weaver was a big star. Tony Shalhoub uh, had. I wonder, was this pre-monk? This was I think pre-monk. It was monk. Yeah, he, okay. he was he was a successful actor, but he wasn't yet as big as he'd become. Yeah, right. and Tim Allen was just coming off of Home Improvement, which had been running yeah. for, I think, eight seasons. And he's got a really he was a really good choice uh, as yep. as an actor to play the William Shatner stand-in 
one of the things now, if you're a, a hardcore Star Trek fan and you read about the behind the scenes stuff, you know that the relationships we see in Galaxy Quest between Tim Allen's character and the rest of the original Clue is a fairly close analog for yep. mm-hmm. William Shatner's relationship to the rest of the original Enterprise crew. Shatner was, uh, there are some resentments there. Now, yeah. this, this plays the resentments a little stronger than they seem to be in real life. There's been some reconciliation between Shatner and, like, for example, Nimoy before he died. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But this is actually, you know, this, this felt real. And Tim Allen yeah. is able to do that positive, gung-ho public persona, but with enough of an ego that you could see why people would resent him. Right. And uh, and and so he was a really good choice to do the William Shatner part. You know the 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 documentary mentions other people who were considered for that part, and mm-hmm. I thought the list was interesting. So Kevin Klein, who actually I think mm, he could have been, been good, been good, yeah. Uh, Bruce Willis would have played it a little too broad, I think. Yeah, um, he definitely had the action action figure he roll did. down. I mean, Tim Robbins, Mel Gibson. Would have been terrible. Uh, Alec Baldwin, (laughs) Steve Martin, Bill Murray, and Robin Williams. Oh, no. None of the last three would have done this justice. No, no, no. no. See, that that would have been the the Harold Ramis campy comedy. Yes. Yes. It would have worked fine, but that's not not for what this ended up being. It it turned out, it it really is. I mean, it it turned out so well with, with all the casting. And yeah, it's, it's funny. Like, I think, I just think of Sigourney Weaver. She really was never thought of as a, as a, comedic actress because of alien yeah and, well, and, and she that actually, was her big breakout role and she has a sci-fi pedigree as an actress yeah. yes yeah well and she she did comedy in ghostbusters but again that was uh outside of her normal what she was expected to do so well and, you're and, right and she wasn't she wasn't a real comedic figure in ghostbusters either right she was, was a you know, possessed was ghostbusters that were like yeah 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 yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you know, speaking of being a nearly perfect Star Star Trek movie, the the documentary starts out by with a quote from David Mamet, the uh, mm-hmm. the Pulitzer Prize winning playwright, says uh, there are four perfect films: The Godfather, A Place in the Sun, Dodsworth, I have no idea what that is, and Galaxy mm-hmm. Quest, which I think is just a hysterical collection of movies. But it yeah. does perfectly straddle that line between farce and serious drama and mm-hmm. and comedy. It it is perfect in that way. Even on even in the scenes on Earth, there's re- at the beginning, there's really fascinating stuff. Oh, so so Tim Allen's character, Jason Nesmith, is chronically late, apparently, because mm-hmm. he just he's he's just not a punctual guy. And so he's right. he's showing up late to this convention. He's forcing everybody to wait for like ninety minutes because he's so late. And when he gets there, he doesn't care about the fact he's late. He's not apologetic. It's like, oh, you know, I had this thing going on. But then once he's actually interacting with the fans, he gives the fans what they want in a way right. the other actors are not. The other actors are are happy to be there and sign autographs and stuff, but they're really consumed by their resentments and their and, towards each other and towards what's happened in their careers. They're not focused on the fans, and yep, and right. and Jason Nesmith is. He is there once he finally once he's finally there. He is on. He is there yeah. for the fans to help the fans have a good time and give them what they want. 
And they even have Sigourney Weaver's character comment on it. That's like, you know, he really loves what he does. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was a fascinating insight about a, and a redeeming one. Because, you know, the Jason Nesmith character is meant to be, to some degree, especially in the beginning, unsympathetic. Right. But he has this redeeming quality. He really is, he has a customer service mindset for the fans to help them have a good time. Yeah. At one point that fails. You know, yeah. He goes mm-hmm. into the bathroom and he overhears someone mocking him and the show and the fans. And he kind of it kind of throws him off. And so when Justin Long and his buddies come up to him at the table and want to ask him some technical question about a, a conflict, you know, a, 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 an yep. error in the show, in continuity, he blows up at him and tells him yep. it's just a show. Which, and, is, which is famously something William Shatner has done. Yeah, right. well, he did it in the, uh, that in, Saturday Night Live yes. skit, which yeah. was great, yeah. But I, um, I think that was actually playing off a, a real event. I think that Saturday Night Live skit was playing off something Shatner did at one point. Oh, it, okay. And it certainly plays off situation Shatner has been in, where obsessive fans were asking him trivial <laughs> questions about the show that he didn't want to answer. Yeah. Right, right. Which, you know, I can understand, you know. I I was hitting things at random. <laughs> yeah, I, I love the I love the in the Saturday Night Live sketch where Shatner is saying it's just a TV show, and so the fans are like, "So you're saying we should pay more attention to the movies?" <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> right, right. Well, you know, it's interesting watching those scenes where it, it it's the actors maybe being themselves, or at least in the fans. And, you know, admittedly, never having been to a con, never having met anyone who you would even remotely consider famous by any stretch of imagination, except, you know, maybe Catholic famous, you know, some, you know, mm-hmm. people who are, you know, more well-known in the Catholic oh, circles. Oh, yeah, like the Pope. I'm a Catholic famous. <laughs> oh, no. No. You know, certain people who might be on this podcast, right, Dom? No. <laughs> sure, sure. Um, but uh, I've always wondered, like, when you go to a con and you meet these these actors who, you know, they, they meet people all day. How much of that is there in their persona they want to show? You know, when you meet, if you met, you know, William Shatner, if you met, uh, you know, David Tennant from Doctor Who, you met, you know, all these actors, how much are you, you actually meeting that person or are you just meeting the persona they do, their con persona? The character that they're playing. The character they're public. playing, which is different from the character they play on the show, but it's the character they show to the people. Well, everybody who is speaking as someone who is asked to go to Catholic conventions as a right. Catholic well-known person, you know, there you do want to be on for the people mm-hmm. there. And, and it can be dicey at times. You have to think really, at least if you're trying to do your job, which I try to, you have yeah. to, like, let's say you've been assigned to, to eat dinner with a group of people. Mm-hmm. You, it's, there's so much more that goes into that than people realize if you're hosting a, a table, because you've got to interact with everybody at the table to make sure that they feel like they've had adequate personal interaction with you. Mm -hmm. You have to make sure that nobody at the table dominates the conversation so that everybody gets a chance to speak and you have to pull the shy people out of their shells to get interaction with them so that they feel mm-hmm. satisfied afterwards so they don't come away thinking oh he just completely ignored me and mm-hmm. let this other person dominate the conversation and there are people who will try to dominate the conversation and you have to find ways to 
navigate around that in a way that mm-hmm. doesn't let them do it, but also they don't feel like you're, you know, like they don't feel bad. Right. And so there's, there is a definite different mode you go into when you're interacting with people at conventions, but mm-hmm. it's still based on you. Right. And so I think if you're, if you're meeting a celebrity, you're still seeing a good bit of who that person is. And it's, and I, and I can understand that completely because mm-hmm. I know even just, you know, as a priest, when I'm there at, at the church, yeah. say before or after mass, I, I, I have to be interacting with people and I have to be talking with people, but I hope my personality still shows through even as I may be a little more outgoing than I usually, usually would prefer to be, mm-hmm. you know, I am an introvert and, right. you know, it being able to kind of pull out of myself a little bit, but still having my personality show through, I'm not putting up a front, I'm not putting up a, a fake version of me. And that's why I always kind of wonder about some of these actors. Cause of course they get paid to be an alternate person, to be someone else on TV I, on in, you know, and so on. I think there are some actors who they are, they, they are so much an actor that they sometimes have trouble not acting in right. public. But I think there are, there are a lot of others who, who can be personable while reserving their private self a little bit. Right. And I think that's, that's a fair balance. I've been to conventions. I've met uh, a few of the Star Trek uh, cast. I met Marina Sirtis, famously once. I think I told the story about her commenting on my Spuds McKenzie t-shirt and me <laughs> being, you know, 18 years old or 19 years old and being all agog and saying, you're pretty, you know, or something <laughs> <laughs> equally suave and debonair. Um, and, uh, it, and her being very gracious to, to the nerd in, in front of her. So I, I think there's a lot of, um, just being a nice person, you know, just they if they're a nice person in the in their regular life, I think a lot of times they'll be a nice person in public yeah. because like you said Jimmy, they're doing a job. They're being paid mm-hmm. to be at these conventions and they're go- they're going to be professionals sometimes they're job. being paid, sometimes they're not. Right, right. A lot of uh, I think so, uh, some of the big ones especially they're mm-hmm. they're either being paid by to go and promote a project or mm-hmm. being paid to by the convention itself. So uh, there are yeah. there are also though at, I've had encounters at conventions where it's like okay this person is not putting their best foot forward. Mm. Right. Yeah, yeah, that's true. your stories about that too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So let's talk about some of the stuff in the in the uh, movie itself. Some of the the fun bits. Um, one of the things I, I want to talk about is the rock monster. They go mm-hmm. to this planet to have to get a beryllium sphere, which is an analog of the dilithium crystals. Yeah. Uh, that power and, the enterprise. And beryllium is a real metal it's element number four it's one of the lightest metals on it uh, it's Mm -hmm. the second lightest metal other than uh lithium on the periodic table right uh and uh, nesmith or commander taggart has to uh fight this big rock monster that that attacks him which is becomes an analog to the gorn fight between kirk and the gorn in the in the uh original series episode arena so it's a lot Mm. of fun and he loses his shirt in, in that thing in the fight and he beams back up to the ship and uh alan rickman's character says of course he lost his shirt again yeah, which is a great yeah, i see to you Kirk. managed to get your shirt off yeah. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes that's a perfect line <laughs> I, I i i found the rock monster sequence really interesting um so at first so he's been captured by these little childlike aliens with horrible shark teeth and mm. and they're they're all surrounding him on these high bluffs in Utah, 
chanting Garignac, Garignac, Garignac. And at first, mm-hmm. Tim Allen thinks that Garignac is this weird-looking bipedal pig lizard monster in front of him. <laughs> yeah. And he can kind of hold his own against this pig lizard. And then they say, okay, we're going to use the digital conveyor to bring you up. And that's a, clearly they've just changed the name of the transporter for copyright reasons. Mm-hmm. And so they, 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 and Teb, who was one of the Thermians there who is helping them, has this woo reaction to the, we're going to use the digital conveyor to bring you up. And they're like, it's, it's, it's perfectly safe, right? And he's going, well, it has never been successfully tested. <laughs> but, but then it was designed for your anatomy, not ours. And now that we have the master tech sergeant Chin here, he can manipulate the controls like a maestro and bring him up. And so they try bringing up the pig lizard. And Tim Allen's <laughs> listening over the communicator and hearing all this stuff going on up there because the pig lizard has materialized inside out. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and, and one of them, which is kind of like the transporter accident in Star Trek The Motion Picture. And, yes. and then one of them says, but the pig lizard is inside out. And, and Tim Allen hears that, and then it explodes. And Teb said, <laughs> and it exploded. <laughs> As he's got pig lizard guts all over his face. And 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 then it turns out Garignac is not the pig lizard; it's the rock monster who then proceeds to form, mm-hmm. and it's like a swirl of telekinetic boulders, or a telekinetic swirl of boulders in kind of a humanoid outline. And of and part of my brain said this makes no sense scientifically, but I don't care because this is so much fun, and that's what yes. that's what you want in movies like this. You want it to be so much fun, you're willing to give them the silly science. That's right. A guy has a great line just before this, by the way, where when they first see the little blue alien, like yeah. baby like aliens, and they're, they're not doing anything uh, mean yet, he c- totally calls it. He's like, no, no, these, they're going to turn to be scary and awful and evil, and they're going to kill me because I'm yeah. red shirt guy yeah. number six. And there's going to be way <laughs> more of them. And Sigourney Weaver is like trying to calm him down, and he's like, did, did any of you ever watch the show? and and then when they do turn evil sigourney weaver is like we've got to get guy out of here before one of those things kills him (laughs) (laughs) yeah he has a panic attack on the shuttlecraft going down to the surface where he's like i'm i know i'm gonna die here like i don't even have a last name they didn't even give me a last name it's like guy you have a last name what is it i don't know he's like see (laughs) yeah well i like that because he 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 wanted he wanted to go on that mission because he thought he was the red shirt who was going to die on the ship by something horrible. And now he realizes he's the red shirt who's going to die on the planet by something horrible. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. By the, uh, by the way, uh, there's, yeah. there's a reason that they're on this side quest to get a brilliant sphere. So they, they encountered Saris again and yeah. totally got their butts kicked because yes. they were, they, and they realized we're actors. We're not really a trained space crew and we need to get out of here, but they can't because Saris will shoot down any pods leaving the ship. And so they tried, Saris attacked the ship and did major damage to it. They then had to run through a minefield of magnetic mines that had been left over from an old war. In the process, they took all kinds of damage, and their beryllium sphere cracked, and they don't have another on board. 
So they have to go on this side quest to a planet to get a new beryllium sphere. And as far as side quests go, this was so much better than Canto Bite. <laughs> there was there was like a reason for this, and it made sense, and it hooked up into the main plot, and it was like, wait, <laughs> note to Star Wars, this is how you do a side quest. <laughs> right, yeah. right. And, and, and of course, in a, a typical Star, Star Trek trope, all the, the, the main crew are the ones who go on the, right, the yeah. uh, away mission. It's yes. the commander and the second command and all that stuff. You know, it's all the, the head people. It's not like the, the ensigns, the, the, the enlisted who go on the, the away mission. Oh, no, it's the head people who are, like, important or something. So when they get back to the ship, they eventually it, they find Saris has shown up and has taken over the ship. And, and they're, they're all been captured. And then they have to they, they separate and they're all going in different directions. Because they have di- to, different jobs. Different mm-hmm. jobs. That's right. And the Sigourney Weaver's character and, and Tim Allen's character are running through these, the access corridors, the, the, the below decks, and they're in communication with the Justin Long's character, Brandon, who's got him. He and his friends have technical pl- plans for the entire ship, which is totally a thing I did when I was a kid. Well, <laughs> I could have well, done that. And there's <laughs> that great scene where, you know, Brandon has the, the, the real communicator and Tim Allen's trying to talk to him. He's like, I'm not a nutcase. I'm not, you know, we know it's fake. Brandon, the ship is real. I knew it. Yeah. <laughs> I knew it. Yes. And so he's trying to lead them through the ship, and it's like, okay, now take a left turn. And then it's like the, the hall of chompers, and it's these big pistons smashing together. And they're like, vertically and Who? horizontally. <laughs> and yep. uh, was it, it, uh, Gwen, Sigourney Weaver's character, says, you could clearly see her mouth moving, saying, bleep that and of course yep. they wanted to get the pg-13 rating so she says screw this and uh <laughs> she uh it's like who's designing this who is who wrote this stuff like why is this even in a ship and uh yeah. which is great because we've seen that so many times on star trek but uh and then it, the they get stuck and they're waiting for there's a countdown timer and they've hit the button to stop the countdown because the ship's going to explode. <laughs> eh, whatever it is. It's not really that important. It's the Omega-13. And they're like, no, Brandon, that was the, Bra- that was the, the, the power, their, their power system was, was overloading. It was, yeah. you know, oh, that's they're right. going to have a fusion reactor explosion or whatever. And they're calling for Brandon, and Brandon's not there. And it turns out that- making him take out the garbage. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I love that. That is so perfect. Mother, you do not understand how important it is that I be doing what I'm supposed to be doing right now. I just thought that was awesome. And oh, of course, man. you had the countdown that it had to go to one. Right, right. You, you couldn't just stop at that point. It had yes. to go to one. So in the, countdown always goes to one. In this side quest, we have a whole string of cliches mm-hmm. that Sigourney Weaver points out as we do them. At first, they're walking through corridors, but then they have to crawl through ducts. And it's yes. like, oh, it's why is it always ducks? And then they hit the chompers, which are the ridiculous threat that shouldn't exist. Then right. they have the countdown that, ha- oh, they also have a spinning fan that she comments, well, there's nothing here but this spinning fan we have in every episode. And, <laughs> yes. and if you look at sci-fi shows, it's like Battlestar Galactica, Stargate, Babylon 5. They've all got spinning fans in the background, big indust- <laughs> right. industrial spinning fans. And then the countdown that has to go to one. And, uh, and it's, it's, you know, it's, again, it's something, someone who's really seen a lot of sci-fi and knows the tropes put that sequence together. 
Right. Oh, yeah. So the the movie is full of great lines. There's so many great lines. Alan Rickman's character has, Dr. Lazarus, has this line from the show that everyone always wants him to do. And he's the, so The equivalent sick and tired. of live long and prosper. Yeah. Right. And it's uh, it's by grab Thar's hammer, you will be avenged. And he's in the beginning of the movie. He's like, I'm not going to say that line one more time. I'm never going to say it again. You know, and he's like, every time he has to, he's forced to say it. But there comes a point where this one of the Thermians who really looks up to him and has said he's modeling his life on the culture of Dr. Lazarus's people. I forget what the the name of the culture Mm -hmm. is. And uh, he gets killed. He's he's shot and he's dying. And this is the point where where Alan Rickman, as such a great actor, he he says the line with such meaning and feeling. And you just feel it. And, and right in that moment, he means it. Yeah. By Grabthar's hammer, you will be avenged. And I'm like, yep. what awesome, what an awesome moment. It, it's really well set up because the relationship, the, the character's name is Quellek. Yes. Mm-hmm. And Quellek is an analog for fans who like really modeled themselves after Mr. Spock and Vulcan culture. Right. Yeah. And so this is Alan Rickman meeting Quellek is like, Leonard Nimoy meeting one of these fans. And then he, Quellek is into all of the alien culture stuff from Dr. Lazarus's people. And he, Alan Rickman's kind of going along with it, you know, kind of resentfully. But then they start having success. And then out, and they save all these people. And then mm-hmm. out of nowhere, Quellek is shot. And he's like, I'm shot. And he falls down. And and he confesses to Alan Rickman that I've always thought of you as a father. And it's mm. at that moment that Rickman delivers the full version of the line, meaning it, by mm-hmm. Grabthar's hammer, by the sons of Warvan, you shall be avenged. And it is a really yeah. moving moment. And it's also really cool how they've used blue food coloring to suggest blood in, in <laughs> Quellick's mouth. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Poor Very guy's like, fitting. Blah, blah. <laughs> Very uh, fitting. So uh, some other great lines I got to mention, by the way, the uh, the Thermians, they're always, they say, you are our last hope. Yeah. <laughs> like they have this yeah. this monotone way of speaking. Uh, this, of course, never give up, never surrender, which is uh, the captain's line. D- Gwen DeMarco, uh, Scooney Weaver, she, <laughs> they're in a, in a meeting and she's doing the thing where she, su- she repeats everything that the computer says. And someone calls her on it, and she says, look, I have one job on this lousy ship. It's stupid, but I'm going to do it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I, I mean, it, it's it's such a great scene because, you know, Tim Allen, like the commanders, you know, asks something of the computer, and the computer doesn't respond. He looks at her, and she respond, She does it, and the computer immediately <laughs> yes. responds. But that's such a quotable line you could, like, you could do in the workplace all the time. Look, I have <laughs> one job on this lousy ship. It's stupid, but I'm going to do it. And, um, and that's an illustration of how the cast ends up embracing their roles. Even by the end, Guy yes. is ready to rush in and to a situation where he believes he'll be killed in order yeah, right. to save people. It's like, I can either, I'm, I'm going to die. It's either going to be as a hero or a coward. I'd rather die as a hero. And at that moment, yep. Tony yep. Shaloub says, maybe you're the plucky comic relief. Did you ever think of that? <laughs> <laughs> and actually... That's what he is in this movie. Yeah. He's not the guy who dies. He is the comic relief who's afraid of dying. Right. Yeah. Right. So awesome. And then uh, we have that so great that... scene where, where Tony, 
Tony Shalhoub, he gets he gets the idea, uh, Tech Sergeant 10 gets the idea of how to take care of the bad guys by beaming up the rock monster. <laughs> yes, and the rock he monster. He just has a, gets a devilish <laughs> grin on his face. Oh, this is going to be good. <laughs> <laughs> There's uh, another line where uh, he's, uh, was it uh, Tim Allen's character says uh, about Rickman, uh, give him a hand. He's British. Like, he's, oh no, like, that's a that's an that's an MC as they're introducing the uh, the crew to the oh, convention audience. Right, give right, him a right, hand. Right. He's British. <laughs> yes, yeah. right, right. Uh, and then, of course, there's a there's a side a little side story about how a little side plot about how Tech Sergeant Quan Chen falls in love with the one of the um, the Thermians. Her name and is they, uh, Laliari. Yes, Lali, and uh, they they end up kissing and kind of falling off screen. And Guy's character sees him, and this was a a line that was uh, uh, made up on the spot by Sam Rockwell. He's like, oh, hey, whoa, oh, that's not right. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like <laughs> she, she's reverting partly to her octopus form. <laughs> yes, yes. Oh, that's not right. That's which is another great quotable line. Uh, just it's a, such a so many great lines in this movie. Uh, one one of them that's very interesting because there's this rivalry between Alan Rickman's Doctor Lazarus and and Tim Allen's Commander Taggart, and mm-hmm. so part of the so at this point in the show at this point in the in the movie, Saris has left the ship. He set their reactor to detonate in like eight minutes, and it's way more than eight minutes. Mm-hmm. And he's venting air from C deck to. Uh, asphyxiate a whole bunch of Thermians that are in their quarters on sea deck and they can't get out. And he's left a bunch of his own men to blow up yeah. with the ship. Uh, apparently they are unaware of this, that the, that the ship's mm. going to blow up. Even though the computer is constantly announcing that it's about to blow up and the command override is, is over, the override is yep. offline. But, so this actually is one point that I think they could have executed a little better, because there's a logic mm-hmm. problem. Why are these guys not realizing they're all about to die? Right. But when Quellick and Alan Rickman are able to save the asphyxiating Thermians, immediately the credit goes to, Commander Taggart has saved us! <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and at an earlier point in the movie... Alan Rickman's resentment was so intense, he would have thrown a fit at this point. But now that they've been through all this, it's like, let's just get to the command deck. <laughs> he's, just, he's just mildly annoyed at this point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, one thing I want to mention is there have been other homages uh, homage to uh, Star Trek. Most recently, the Orville, which the three of us have talked mm-hmm. about in the past. This is better uh, than in- the Orville. Oh yeah. Well, I was going to say, how much is the Orville an attempt to retread the ground of Galaxy Quest? I, I well, I think what it, the Orville is was really was an attempt to retread the ground of Next Gen, and mm. because they couldn't get a Next Gen show like on the air, they decided to make it as a parody, giving them mm. legal cover. But they only wanted enough parody to provide yeah. legal cover. What they really wanted to do was tell next-gen style stories. Yeah. Right. And so I think it's not as successful as this because it doesn't take its role as a parody seriously enough. Well, right. It, I mean, I know Fox promoted it as a comedy, but it, it's pretty clear when you watch, especially the second season of the Orville, it's really not, there is some comedic elements, but it's not meant to be a comedy by in and seth mcfarland was very clear he wanted to direct a actual star trek series he actually approached cbs and paramount 
about right. doing an actual Star Trek series, and they kind of went, eh, "Go away, kid. Go do go do your your Family Guy thing. You know, just right. leave us alone." And right. so we came up with the Orville as kind of a, and yeah, the Orville really is. It's meant to be another ship in the TNG universe. You know, the Enterprise E is off flying off somewhere, and you got the Orville doing its thing. Right. That's what it was supposed to to feel feel like. Yeah. Um, yeah. In fact, apparently the Orville is not done. Uh, <laughs> apparently, no, it's still coming back. <laughs> there's supposed to be a third season. It was affected by this lovely virus that has affected everything else. Yeah. But there's a third season that's not going to be on Fox. It's going to be on Hulu, I think. Yeah, I think I heard that. Yeah. So uh, one other thing to, to mention is is the, setting this movie again in time in 1999. Sci-fi movies at the end of the 90s were grim and dystopian. Basically, mm-hmm. they weren't. They were not fun movies. And and I I think it feels like the the studio what was the DreamWorks was yeah. the studio behind it. Yep. They thought, well, this is obviously not a regular sci-fi movie. It's a movie for kids, so we really should market it at kids. And in the documentary they talk about how that was a mistake that there was a mm-hmm. they, they thought it was being pushed toward kids instead of to the adult fans of tos and well, tng um, I, had, I had to laugh there's a point where they talk about how it's a tim allen movie you know of course tim right. allen had just done santa claus at this point and he had been on home improvement which wildly popular in toy uh, story family yeah. show and toy story and i kind of laugh at that because have you ever seen any of tim allen's stand-up <laughs> he was rude yeah. he was not family friendly by any stretch and he had a rough i mean he self-inflicted i mean he was a drunk he did drugs he got busted for really bad you know crew, you know driving around 100 miles an hour down streets of los angeles stuff like that you know i mean he he had when he was especially when he was doing stand-up was not a good person and he was right. not a family friendly person by any stretch of the imagination he's since changed quite a bit yeah yeah uh Speaking of Tim Allen, though, one of the reasons he wanted to do this is apparently he's a huge sci-fi nerd. That he talks mm-hmm. about that, mm-hmm. uh, not just Star Trek, but with other stuff too. So that was an aspect of him doing this. The director Dean Pariso was an unknown when he when he took on this. He had done one yep. pre- precisely one previous movie. Uh, he took over for Harold Ramis. I mean, knocking it out of the park, home run on your second time out, which is is pretty yeah. good. Um, and then just one other thing, I, I other note I mentioned. I'll turn it over to you guys for your, any of your notes. But uh, they, the movie is shot in three different aspect ratios, which I didn't mm-hmm. notice mm-hmm. until they talked about it in the documentary. It starts out square for TV, like the old yeah. TV show. Then it goes wide when they go from the old TV show to the quote-unquote real world of the convention. So it's get this wider aspect. And then when uh, Jason, the first time he realizes he's in space when he's standing on the transport pad about to be covered in goo and shot into the space, it opens up yeah. into the anamorphic really wide. And I thought that was yeah. so clever because it subconsciously triggers your, you to think differently about this movie in different places. So I thought that was a fascinating and aspect that, of it. You, know, you can see the first, the first change, you know, on, on, you know, when you watch it on Amazon streaming or whatever, because mm-hmm. of course it goes from, you know, you got the letterbox and then it widens out. You don't really see the second one because of course it not going any wider. It gets, I think it shrinks actually. It shrinks the, Top to bottom screen, yeah. Top to bottom a little bit, so you don't really notice it. But I I can imagine at a theater that that would have been really impressive, where the doors open up and it just keeps getting wider and wider and wider than it was before. Right, a really interesting effect. Yeah. So, do you guys have any other notes on on the movie that you want to add, Father Corey? Talking about casting, you know, we mentioned uh, Rain Wilson, who had Uh been both in this. This was like this first 
real serious. I think he'd been like in a soap opera or something like that before this. Mm. So like this was his first real serious role. And then, of course, he was recently in Discovery. Well, there's four other people who were credited roles in both Galaxy Quest and Star Trek. Because there's lots of people who are like stunt doubles and crew right. and behind the scenes and all that kind of stuff. But uh, one of them, Matt Winston, is a technician. He's like really early on in Galaxy Quest. Crewman Daniels in Enterprise. Right, right. Daniels, he was that's in right. That. And then there's a Heidi Swedberg is uh, the mother, uh, Brandon's mother in this. Yep. She was a relican in DS9's Profit and Loss episode where she was one of the uh, Cardassian dissident students. Oh, um, okay, yeah. Robin Sachs, who played Saris, uh, was General Valen in Voyager's The Void. Uh, he was the head of the opposing force to Voyager's, quote-unquote, Federation in that episode. Okay. And then the second in command in this, Wayne Pear, was Gil in Voyager's Random Thoughts. He was the one who traded in the dark thoughts of the crew. He was the one who, you know, he spot, there, was a, there was a race of people who traded stories via telepathy, and he traded oh, yeah. in the dark stories. So right, there's, right. There's five people who had been both in Galaxy Quest and a Star Trek series. That's not awesome. again, not counting all the people who are uncredited and behind the scenes and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, cool. Jimmy, any uh, final thoughts? So the Thermians are from the Klaatu Nebula, and that's a reference to yeah. Klaatu Barada Nikto, or the robot Klaatu, at least, from The Day the Earth Stood Still. I really like the Thermian body language. Uh, because mm. they, the actors playing the Thermians don't use their bodies the way humans do, since they're supposed to be octopus monsters that just mm -hmm. are in human form due to an appearance generator. And so one of the things you'll see them doing is they use their legs differently when they're walking. They're kind of a little more dramatic and stiffer. But then they also hold their arms in front of them. And as they're, as they're walking or running, they'll kind of paddle their arms in front of them a little bit as if they were tentacles hanging off their front that they're balancing with. Also, mm -hmm. when they're in the stall house where Tim Allen lives at the beginning of the movie and he's like looking for a shoe, he says, look for my other shoe. It looks like this one. And he holds it up and they all immediately start <laughs> looking at the ceiling as if they might <laughs> yes. find a shoe there. <laughs> There's a great moment where they're about to set, they're about to pilot the uh, the protector out of the space dock, and Laredo has to do it because they've patterned yeah. all of it after his hand motions, and yeah. he hasn't done this in years and years and years, and he like scrapes the side of the ship against the space dock, <laughs> and everybody's just watching this happening and trying to, and you can see them leaning as if they're willing him away from that wall of the space dock. <laughs> <laughs> when they're trying to explain at one point that they're actors and that not everything you see on TV is, is real, Sigourney Weaver is saying, well, like, surely, you know, if you've seen Gilligan's Island, and immediately the Thermians are all, those poor people. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's right. A little detail that I really liked about Saris's, uh costume is, so he's this lizard, insect, lobster-looking guy. He's all green. Mm -hmm. But he's got these tines on his back. And when he gets mm -hmm. upset, they will, like, suddenly fan out. And yeah. they never make, they never comment on this, but we see it happen a few times. 
And it's like, okay, that's a that's a believable move that, you know, mm-hmm. some animals have like they will puff themselves up to appear more threatening. And if you've got an upset whatever he is, having these little lobster wings fly out is a nice touch. <laughs> yes. We have a bunch of stuff happening with airlocks, and this is another one where it's not really that realistic mm-hmm. because so here's a tip. If you're ever in an airlock and someone's about to space you, don't stand towards space. Stand towards the inside. Get as close as you can to the interior door of the airlock. The reason is there will not be enough air in front of you to push mm-hmm. you out the airlock. The more air is in front of you, the more it's going to push you when you're open to space. So you could actually stand right up against the glass on the interior surface, and you're not going to move. And that'll right. give you your best chance for survival. So we see some of Saris's guys who are kind of in the middle of an airlock getting spaced. And yeah. then we see the, the Thermians having the air vented from their compartments. And it goes on for minutes, and there's all this wind <laughs> and stuff happening. It's like, yeah. no, you don't get wind unless you have an ongoing air source. So right. the air would just <laughs> vent and be done with it if that were the case. You yeah. wouldn't have all this violent wind. You'd have a rush of violent wind and then nothing. But it's still fun and dramatic to look at. Yes. Yep. And then, of course, the movie ends with the cast getting their show back for the new adventures of the Galaxy Quest. And we get a the basically the opening credits for the new show where we see all of the actors and the parts they're playing. And so we've got, you know, uh, Jason Nesmith as uh, Commander Taggart. We've got Dr. Lazarus. We've got Lieutenant Madison. We've got Laredo. We have Tech Sergeant Chin. And... Jane Doe as Laliari. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then Guy Fliegman as Security Chief Rock Ingersoll. So finally he has a name. Yep. He's got a name. <laughs> that is, yeah, yes. So, I mean, sort of as a wrap-up, Galaxy Quest, it feels like a Trek movie because it has all the hallmarks of Star Trek. It feels true, but it doesn't take itself seriously and yet offends no one. Even in taking itself not seriously, it doesn't offend. It doesn't offend the fans or the or the people who make the the thing. It there, respects there, everyone there who may loves be it. exceptions here or there. Sure, sure. But in general, I think it. I think that's what makes it a great uh, a great movie and a great Star Trek movie. Um, so, I think that should do it for our discussion of Galaxy Quest. As I promised, though, we have some feedback, and we had an email from Timothy Meeting on our recent episode on The Conscience of the King, the original series episode. He asked, uh, did you consider the possibility of Kirk as Hamlet? You have Claudius and Ophelia, and have acknowledged them as such. Given that, couldn't Kirk's erratic and irrational behavior be a deliberate conceit on the part of the writers to portray him as a modern Hamlet? And if so, couldn't Spock and McCoy have some of the characteristics of Horatio and Polonius, thus rounding out the play within the play within the play? And then uh, <laughs> Timothy says, thanks to the podcast, it's thought-provoking and entertaining. And I always enjoy the banter among the three of you. Thank you, Timothy. Mm. I think it's an interesting idea. I hadn't considered that, but Kirk is kind of irrationally torn in the middle, like Hamlet mm-hmm. is in much of his play. And, of course, Kirk does have counselors that advise him. 
Yeah. Fortunately, yeah. there's no Rosencrantz and Guildenstern in this that Kirk sends off to their deaths knowingly. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> that's that's fortunate. Thanks, Tim uh, Timothy. That's uh, was uh, great. Uh, great feedback. So we wanted to take a moment uh, to thank our patrons to make it possible for us to create the secrets of Star Trek, including Max S, Mark R, Bo H, Rochelle K, and Jason H. Their generous donations at sqpn.com/give make it possible for us to continue the secrets of Star Trek and all the shows at StarQuest. Now is a great time to become a StarQuest patron. Thanks to a generous gift from a StarQuest supporter, when you start a new Patreon monthly pledge at sqpn.com slash give, the first three months will be matched by an equal amount from our donor to support all our shows, including this one, which makes your gift go even further. And we're getting very close to reaching our goal of $2,000 in new monthly pledges. So won't you help us reach that, that goal and close the gap? If you've been thinking of becoming a StarQuest patron, now's the time. Visit sqpn.com slash give today. So that's it from us. What did you think of Galaxy Quest? Have you seen it? Is it the greatest Star Trek movie made? Let us know by commenting on the show at sqpn.com slash trek or our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Media, or send an email to trek at sqpn.com. We'll be back next time when we'll be discussing the Next Generation episode, Justice. Until then, Father Corey Stika, thank you for joining me and sharing the secrets of Star Trek. Thank you, Dom. Jimmy Aiken, thank you as well. Be afraid. Be very afraid. <laughs> and by Grabthar's hammer, by the sons of Warvan, you shall be avenged. <laughs> and once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to the secrets of Star Trek on StarQuest. And remember... Never give up, never surrender.